if I had $4,000 to blow on a silicone mermaid tail, you better believe I would. Welcome to Ten Cent Takes, the podcast that we play in the 1970s basement of our stepdad every Friday night, one issue at a time. My name is Mike Thompson, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, the paladin of pain, Jessica Frazier. I sure am. I'm going to cut you with a K, which you said last time, and I, or a couple times ago, and I still appreciate. <laughs> I'm glad I could give you that. If you're new to the show, the purpose of this podcast is to look at comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We like to look at the coolest, the weirdest, and the silliest moments, as well as how they are woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. If you're enjoying the show so far, it would be a huge help if you can review us or give us a rating on platforms like Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, and Good Pods, because that really helps with our discoverability. And as always, we are no longer on Spotify. We have removed the show because they continue to give prominent roles to voices spreading vaccine disinformation. Today, we are going to kick off a three-episode look at the history of Dungeons & Dragons in comics. In this episode, we're going to talk about The Realm, the fantasy comic series that basically delivered a classic D&D story over a year before the first D&D comic actually hit the market. We're also really fortunate to be joined by our guest expert, Kelly Galton, from the amazing tabletop store in Petaluma, Goblin Bros. Kelly, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us about the shop? Yes. Hi. Like Mike said, my name is Kelly, though if you come in the store, I will be wearing a name tag that says socks because I'm usually wearing a pair of very strange socks. Uh, so you can call me either. Essentially, all there is to know about me is I love my boyfriend, my cat, my books, and Dungeons and Dragons. I am the rune maker for Goblin Brothers, which means I handle all of our social media and communications, though that doesn't say that on my business card. We'd like to confuse people. That store, Goblin Brothers, has been open for about six months. Uh, we are in downtown Petaluma. We are extremely fortunate to have a store on Kentucky Street. And Petaluma has given us an absolutely astounding welcome. We couldn't be more grateful for the people in our town, the people in surrounding towns. The word about us has spread and we are really booming. It's been really, we sell board games, party games, card games, peripherals like t-shirts, pins, hats. And we also have a fabulous Dungeons and Dragons library, puzzle headquarters. And we also have a very fine collection of luxury dice for people who are interested in such things like me mm. and me my stepson was so interested in them look if anybody's looking for lapis lazuli hollow metal fluorite labradorite obsidian we got you covered like come check it out and we also have a ton of DD adjacent things so we have the hero's feast which is the official cookbook we have a cocktail book called dungeon meister all based Amazing. on D. we have the spell cards magic item cards but we also have a ton of ttrpgs that are not wizards of the coast or their system we have the cthulhu rpg we have thousand year old vampire we have alice is missing as well as a ton of small indie systems and rules that you should absolutely check out if you are someone who has played 5e and wants a break or who is just getting into ttrpgs for the first time i just heard about the thousand year old vampire and it sounds it's incredible it's so cool. a solo game right yes it is a solo game you can play it like adjacent to someone <laughs> like if you're sitting at the same table but it is a solo game i haven't played it but like 
if you come in and my coworker Luke is there, you ask him about Thousand Year Vampire, you will be sold. I swear. It is listening to him talk about it is you're watching someone go through a religious experience. It's incredible. I'm also very fortunate in that I get to do all of our book ordering. I get to work with large publishing companies like Simon and Schuster and Penguin, but I also get to work with indie publishers that use larger companies as their distributors. And for someone who wants to be a writer and who is heavily into comics and just regular novels, being able to work within the publishing field has been just incredibly exciting for me. And so I'm Goblin Brothers has been really formative for me, but I absolutely love that we're forming a community around our little store. Yeah, Petaluma is getting real nerd friendly these days between oh. you guys and Nostalgia Alley, the retro video game store and Copperfield, yeah. which is an amazing bookstore. And then our default store, Brian's Comics, like all within a block of each other. Yeah. Yeah, we will be doing, hopefully doing a collaboration with them for free comic book day. Nice. That's awesome. Things will be appearing on our social media, which I have everything to do with. So you definitely will be seeing it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let us know how we can help out with that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. The first part of our episode is focusing on one cool thing that we have read or watched lately. So Kelly, you are our guest of honor. Why don't you kick us off? Oh, I'm so tickled that you called me the guest of honor. (laughs) Nobody's ever called me that before. Okay, so I have really been in a slump as it refers to modern media. I do a lot of reading of like Jane Austen and Thackeray, (laughs) but I do watch Critical Role weekly. So we are watching Campaign 3 right now. And while that's not necessarily like a cool new thing, I have to say that it's the first time I've ever watched it live. And it's been a really amazing experience for me, Uh, especially since we make a big night out of it. Every Thursday, I cook a big dinner because cooking is a big hobby of mine. My boyfriend buys all the groceries and helps me. And then my best friend brings coffee and we get to have like a set night where we can spend time together and watch people play our favorite game, which is very fun. But I am also super excited because the one and only manga that I've ever read that kind of like has gotten me interested in the general genre is called, and I'm so sorry if I mispronounced this, is Yokohama Kaidashi Kiko. And it is a post peaceful decline of humanity, like slice of life manga about an android who runs a coffee shop in the middle of like a rural town. The art style is absolutely incredible. And the characters are just very beautiful in a human way, even Alpha, the android, because it makes the assumption that humans have made androids in almost an indistinguishable way from humans, except that the androids just talk about how they're androids instead of like trying to hide it. And it's the it's just an incredibly beautiful manga. And it up until now has only ever been produced in print in Japanese. But this year, Seven Seas Publishing, which is one of the biggest independent manga publishers in the world, acquired it. And in August, they are printing an omnibus for the first time in English in the US. You better believe we pre-ordered that so fast. I am so excited and I've been reading it for months. I've been rereading it. It's LGBTQ themes and the art style is just gorgeous. It showcases family and what a found family can mean. And I have nothing but good things to say about it. That's awesome. Like I'll read that. I'm not a big manga person, but yeah, my partner lived in Japan for a while and my stepkids are mixed race, part Japanese. So they'll be all over that too. That's really cool. 
Oh, yeah. When it comes out, I'll send you guys a message because just the art style alone made me fall in love with it. But it was actually recommended to me on Tumblr by a LGBTQ progression uh, blog that I follow. And it doesn't like heavily push a political theory or it doesn't make it a thing. It just is. And nice. it's so organic and so natural. And it's just it's it's beautiful. Yeah, that sounds great. All right, Jessica, you're up. Our amazing friend Guido from the podcast Dear Watchers recently sent me some Elvira comics to add to my collection, which was incredibly sweet. And he wanted to help me get my Elvira collection off the ground, so he sent me some of his duplicates he had, so I was super excited to get those. He sent me number two of the Claypool run of Elvira and number four of the House of Mysteries. And additional Elvira comics. And he also sent me one of the DC holiday specials from like 2010. That was a one shot. And I've already started collecting House of Mystery. So I'll just start piecing them in there. No big deal. I love it. And Elvira, she is easily one of my favorite characters. Like out of comic medium as a whole. She is just sassy. She's strong. And she's sexy, of course. And I got to say, this is one rabbit hole that I can say with absolute certainty, I will not regret going down. Yeah, I just started collecting the Claypool series recently, and I bought a lot of the first 20 issues, and it's so much fun. And that series ran for like 160 plus issues. There's a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I'm starting, but I don't anticipate being finished anytime soon. And that's just one of the runs. There's the DC Elvira's House of Mysteries, too. And there's there's other stuff to collect. Yeah, no, that's, I'm, fuck, man, Rob and Guido are so nice. Like, we don't deserve, so we don't nice. deserve podcast we friends don't. like this. Like, don't you people know we're garbage? He put a cute <laughs> little note in there that said, thinking of you, and it was a rainbow. Oh, Friends of the I pod. Know. Yeah. They're such good friends, the best friends of the pod, yeah. Oh. Yeah, they also hired my partner, they commissioned her to do a Golden Girls Avengers mashup, so it's <laughs> Which, amazing. Oh my god, by the way, it's phenomenal it's really oh good sarah sarah amazing job wait hold on i'm sorry i have to know is this like an artwork or is this like a it's, animation it's an illustration that's genuinely incredible props to your partner for being able to do something like that but mike what about you so i recently became aware of a book called valiant high by writer daniel kibblesmith and artist Derek charm and it was through a Valiant Comics fan group I'm in. It was originally a web series that got a physical print in 2018, and it takes a number of the characters from the Valiant universe, most of whom you at least would know thanks to the Deathmate stuff that we talked about, or at least know, I don't know, you'd be familiar with. But it reimagines them in a high school setting, and it's basically think of that movie Sky High, but with Valiant characters. Exo Manowar is the star member of the football team playing under the guidance of Coach Bloodshot. Gillet Annie Panda is now this ageless student known as the Eternal Sophomore. Ninjak shows up as this mysteriously cool student who has just joined the school after being abroad. And even though it's this new setting and new roles for each of the Valiant Universe's cast, it still feels like this very pure distillation of the characters' essences. But it's really fun and it's very cute. And I really dug this reimagining. It doesn't leave newcomers to the universe confused, but it's also got a lot of Easter eggs for people who read Valiant Comics in either the 90s or when everything got rebooted back in 2012. And honestly, I think it might actually be my favorite Valiant story I've ever read. Oh, very cool. It's a much more pleasant experience than Deathmate was. I can tell you that much. 
I know I came into that like, uh oh, Mike, what, why? Cool, 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 cool. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to the realm and tabletop RPGs in general. So I'm curious, when did everyone here start playing RPGs and what was their first game? And I'm assuming everybody plays D&D now, but I just got to ask. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Lots. Yeah. Okay, cool. Kelly, why don't you go first? When did you start playing RPGs? What was your first game? So I actually started playing RPGs in 2020, but not because of the pandemic. We started like February 1st and essentially our best friend's youngest brother begged us <laughs> to be in a game because he had just started playing Dungeons and Dragons and he was like, I really want to DM, but I don't know who to DM for. Will you please? So like my best friend and my boyfriend and I sat down and we used D&D Beyond. And so we made like our online character sheets and like it was a mess. <laughs> like we, uh, my first character was a high elf a druid circle of the arctic my boyfriend's was a hell dwarf paladin oath of vengeance i think and it was very Uh, oath of vengeance is so much fun yeah they were like obviously first characters like they were very stereotypical but it was a lot of fun so that story ran for about a year and a half we're currently six months into the second campaign in that world so that's what we call the big game that's on saturday nights we were playing in person we're online for a little while right now but then i also run a game every other saturday morning every other saturday is a really long day (laughs) and mine is mostly homebrew it's been really interesting being a dm and then my boyfriend runs a game every other monday and i've gotten to try out lots of different characters and one shots and things and i absolutely adore it both my boyfriend and i were essential workers all the way through the pandemic and DD kept us sane Genuinely, we were grocery store employees in a Southern California town. (laughs) So it was a lot, but getting to come home and talk to our friends about what we're going to do that Saturday. And then on Saturdays, like ramping up to that game, we straight up told our managers, we were like, do not schedule a Saturday night. We are home for Dungeons and Dragons. Like we will not be here. And they were great about it, but it genuinely saved us. Yeah. I would never, ever give it up. (laughs) Ever. That's awesome. I mean, like, I'm sorry that you had to deal with being an essential worker at the height of the pandemic, but I'm glad that D&D was able to provide that solace for you. Up until April 20... No, I guess until I started at Goblin Brothers, I was an essential worker because I went from the grocery store to food service. So it was absolutely insane. Genuinely, if it were not for Dungeons and Dragons, we would be not here. We would have lost our minds and we would be in a very different place. I genuinely credit Dungeons and Dragons with saving like not just our sanity probably our relationship (laughs) and like so many other things it was integral to 2020 and 2021 so yeah jessica i'm sorry you got to follow that up now i'm so sorry (laughs) as i leave no i'm just kidding (laughs) you just see my computer screen shutting where did she go Oh no! Mike's still hot, and I'm like, son of a bitch. <laughs> Mike, I don't feel so good. <laughs> Walks away. Yeah. Sorry, I blacked out there for a sec. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I I actually just started playing a little over a year ago. My friend's husband runs a five e game for us virtually over Foundry, and that's mostly because a couple of our party members live in another state. They live up in Seattle, and we live, you know, in the Bay Area. So. I love that we have the tech now to be able to play games like this virtually versus having to be in person, especially after the pandemic that's been going for a couple of years now. Yeah. And 
like I have rolled to develop a character for like an underwater campaign that one of my friends was going to do a one shot for a few years back. And of course, obviously, I was going to be a mermaid, obviously. But that never got off the ground or under the sea, as it were. (laughs) (laughs) And that would have been a live game. And so that would have been a new and interesting experience. That that would have been my first experience with D&D. So really, truly rolling that first character was my first foray into it, as it were. But yeah, not as heartfelt, I suppose. But... (laughs) I do like getting together with my friends every Sunday night. D&D has really become (laughs) a social activity for so many groups of friends, especially right now, because you can play it remotely so easily, either via D&D Beyond or Twitch or whatever platform you want to use. Dude, our DM's so cool. He puts on music in the background and he does all these like visual effects and like I have an Eldritch Blast. He can make like the little Eldritch Blast. You said you use Foundry? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my boyfriend uses Foundry. He's that exact same person. Like, uh, for <laughs> weeks, he was like a hacker. Like, I found a module that can add in the visual effects. So, like, when you cast a fireball, it has the fire trail behind it. It explodes in real time. And I'm like... <sighs> it's so fun. It's so it's, fun. It's incredible. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And I love when DMs bring that energy to the game like they're so excited and rdm is always so excited to like show us the new stuff that he's been working on for like the visual effects and like oh yeah i updated it so like i play a bard and it's my first character that i've ever played but i'm very much the bard i am i'm playing me like if we're being a hundred percent like i'm just (laughs) being me like i am the pansexual poly bard but i am playing a male character which I'm a little fluid to begin with, so it's like I do some male drag myself, so I'm already in that camp. So, yeah, so it's a ton of fun, though, and so I have the Cloud of Daggers, and he actually has, like, swirling daggers that he can put in a space. It's so cool. (laughs) It's awesome. It's so much fun. Christopher, if you're listening, you're awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Please give me inspiration. (laughs) for mentioning you on our podcast (laughs) oh mike what about you i know you're a big DD nerd too tell us about it (laughs) Uh, yeah so i came to rpgs when i was like 13 or so and my friends had gotten interested in white wolf games like vampire and werewolf and mage and i really wound up glomming on to changeling the dreaming because it felt like that really sweet balance of like urban dark fantasy but at the same time i read so many D novels growing up like i just devoured them but i didn't actually start playing until like five years ago and then since then i've consistently been in a campaign at least a can- one campaign since then i'm currently playing in one virtual group and then i'm co-dming with one of my best friends like in another one and it's not exactly homebrew, but we're basically taking a bunch of old campaigns and adventures and then jamming them together via the sandbox that is Planescape. So that's a lot of fun. But the downside is that our players are a bunch of video game industry veterans, including several BAFTA nominees. No pressure. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. When David told me about that, he's like, oh, I invited Jake and Chuck to play. I'm like, cool. BAFTA nominees playing our story-based game that this is our first crack at. And he was like, I made a mistake. <laughs> Awesome. Sounds like I'm going to do great. Yeah. Terrifying. Good for you, though. Like that. It's genuinely yeah. terrifying. Yeah. Also, co-DMing is a big, 
Like it works out well for us because I don't like the active DMing stuff. Like I don't like playing the roles. I don't like doing that. And so I write out all the story stuff ahead of time. And then my friend David will sit there and do the active storytelling and stuff like that. And it works really well. And then the other thing is that when players are doing stuff or pursuing paths that aren't necessarily something that we've scripted out, I can write the stuff on the fly instead of, you know, having to sit there and be like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. Give me a second. And then while I'm writing it all out, David can sit there and bullshit a little bit. And then like after I have about two minutes to just write out a paragraph, he can act it out. And it's great. It's worked really well. That's the big brain plays. That's you get one person who does the writing and one person who does the acting. That's not. It's great. It works really well for us. But yeah, like, I mean, there's a lot of prep work that goes into it because we're sitting there and writing out these to an extent original stories that are a lot of effort. And the other thing is like we're grabbing a lot of classic D&D campaigns and adventures like the the overall plot that we're doing is Die Vecna Die, which is from Advanced Dungeons and Dragons from the 80s, I think. And then we're jamming our own stuff in the middle of it and and fleshing stuff out and creating new characters and storylines. But yeah, it's fun. That's awesome. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And then the other thing is that the Oath of Vengeance that I was like geeking out over. (laughs) So I got invited by one of my friends. He was like, hey, we just had like one of our players drop out. Would you be willing to step in? I'm like, yeah, sure. No problem. And so I ended up creating it was a Ravenloft campaign, the new one, the Curse of Strahd. Mm -hmm. And then I played a Shadar Kai paladin who pursued the Oath of Vengeance. And the only way I could, I described him to everybody like, yeah, so he is basically a very large hammer living in a world of nothing but nails. <laughs> and like, and that was a lot of fun. Like, he was such an asshole. Oh, but we have a character in my boyfriend's campaign who's a, a fighter. I forget which subclass he is, but he essentially just collects weapons. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's what us did. essentially a porcupine. Like, it could be the crappiest spear you've ever seen in your life, but he takes one thing from every, and he's exactly that thing where it's like, uh, why would I not just fight these people? They're obviously suspicious. And we're like, do you not see the blinking, like, press A to talk mm-hmm. over their head? Like, please. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it's insane. I love it. Yeah, so that actually leads to my next question, which is what character class do you like to play? My favorite class is Druid. I absolutely adore Druids. I have played one. I play one now. I have to say the one that I play now is my favorite character I've ever made that is being played. And she's a circle of the spores druid. So very focused on mushroom, poison, acid, magic. And it's really cool. She's the most complex character I've ever played, like with backstory and everything. And I just, I love her so much. She's also a little bit homebrew. She's a failing, which is a homebrew tiefling, Feywild crossover, but she's incredibly cool. But I tend to gravitate more towards like the casters or half casters. I like to have the creativity and not just a lot of options with like spell casting or martial, but a lot of options within my spell casting. So I tend to stay away from like warlock because at low levels, warlock is like often just one thing. <laughs> so yeah. I try to give myself the characters that have the most options and the most room for creativity. But my boyfriend and I are doing our first partner characters soon. We're going to do two satyrs and he's the bard and I'm a rogue. And so I've never done a rogue before. I'm very excited about it. but. Yeah, definitely Druid is my favorite. Okay, cool. Jessica, how about you? 
So yeah, I'm playing a bard right now and that's the only character I have played, but that was absolutely like the character I wanted to be. (laughs) My DM was like, hey, we already have some people who have selected characters. So like there's a few things left. And I was like, I want to be the bard. (laughs) Can I be the bard? (laughs) He was like, yeah, yeah, you can. (laughs) Nice. I, I don't think he expected me to pick that, but I was like very much right on board. Oh so right now I have a pet monkey. Nice. <laughs> I'm teaching him to steal things. I'm a thief. Oh. I'm a thief bard and I'm teaching him to like pocket things for me. I had awesome. a badger. <laughs> oh. So that's what I'm working with. Mike, what do you normally play? I play everything. Like my current one, I'm playing a rogue, but it's a rogue who is an investigator. So basically it's the cop with criminal skills, but super charismatic <laughs> as well. I don't know. I don't really have like a, a fictional equivalent of it, but imagine someone who starts off very charming and an undercover agent who suddenly finds themselves running around with a pseudo dragon sitting on a tiny like couch built into their shoulder armor. And, oh. and you got an idea. Who is also somehow come into possession of a ship that she is converting into a casino. Weird. (laughs) Love that. Oh, it's great. So, Jessica, you haven't DM'd yet, right? No, that sounds intimidating and terrifying. And no, thank you. Correct. Kelly, you have DM'd and you also play. Which do you prefer? In my head, they're two very different Dungeons and Dragons. Because one, I get to be the man behind the curtain. And then the other, I'm the actor and it's really fun for me to dm and to see everybody's reactions and to say look at this thing that i made but i think i definitely prefer to be a player i just love the creativity that comes with it and the i I don't know what it is about it i just the unexpectedness of it is incredible i guess the best way i could describe it is it's like reading a book but in real life (laughs) where Mm. like you are experiencing someone else's world that they have created but in this case they've created that world specifically for you. <laughs> That's a great way to describe it. Like, I love that. My boyfriend has always said that he's not creative, that he doesn't feel creative. And I have never disagreed with a statement more. <laughs> like, it's hit the way that he has, it's set in the Forgotten Realms, but his creativity in his campaign is just incredible. And in the big game, it's our DM is just amazing. And I'm, I'm so fortunate to be a player. But my campaign that I DM is also amazing, but for different reasons. <laughs> and, you know, it's the other side of the curtain and it's the other side of the book. And I'm very new. My ADHD as it stands certainly doesn't lend itself to remembering small details, like how much things cost or small names of NPCs. But I have an incredible group of players. So definitely prefer to be a player, but am very fortunate to be a DM. Nice. Yeah, I'm kind of along that line too. Like it's fun to DM, but at the same time, I really have much more fun when I'm playing just because I don't have to expend that extra amount of mental energy. And don't get me wrong, I enjoy DMing, but yeah. Okay, so the last question before we actually start talking about the comics is what is one piece of advice that each of you would give to new players? Well, come to my D&D workshops in May at Goblin Brothers. But actually, I would say communicating with your fellow players and your DM is huge. If something makes you uncomfortable, if you have a question about something, just ask, just say something. I I was a communications major and it is the single best piece of advice I have given so many people in so many different 
situations is just communicate if there is any question or concern because D&D is designed to be a game for everybody and it can't be a game for anybody if somebody feels like they can't communicate about it. So that's the biggest thing for me. And the other thing for someone who's neurodivergent like myself, who is a visual learner, buy the player's handbook, <laughs> like have okay. the physical thing or like a good PDF because using D&D Beyond is a wonderful resource, but the way that they store information makes me it's garbage. Want to cry. It is garbage, hot garbage. It's awful. And so I have several of the books that I've bought just because I thought they were cool or because I work at a store that sells them. But I have the player's handbook. It was the first one I bought and I use it all the time, like just for little things. And I, I can't imagine doing D&D without it. Awesome. All right, Jessica, what's one piece of advice? This is going to sound maybe basic, but go in with an open mind and just have fun. Yeah, I think that's a great piece of advice. I will be the first person to tell you that I haven't always been the most supportive of people doing the things that they enjoy doing. And I was raised in a household that kind of was really like, if you did something that was weird, like you got called weird. And I don't live that way now. And I don't like that I had that attitude before. And I would love it if we just all okay with what we all liked doing. I wish everybody was just okay with all of the different things that everybody else liked doing, regardless of whether or not you like doing that thing too. And that's a big thing. You're not going to always find the thing that you're neighbor, sibling, friend is doing is going to, that thing isn't always going to to call to you, but it doesn't have to. Not everything's yeah. for you. And that's okay. That's okay too, but just don't rain on other people's parade. Yeah. You know, when they're trying to have a good time. Yeah. Don't yuck on other people's yum. That is one of my big principles in life. Yeah. You are the main character in your story. You're not the main character in somebody else's story. Like. Yeah. You're the NPC. Yeah. At best. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You might not even render for some people, like just butt out. <laughs> yeah. And like everything that you two have been saying goes with what mine is, which is that when you go in, don't be afraid to ask questions because no one's going to sit there and tell you that it's a stupid question. And if they do, then that's not a group you should be playing with. You should play with mm -hmm. people who will sit there and answer your questions and not make you feel dumb. Yeah. All right. So who's ready to talk about fantasy comics and the realm? Me. Let's do it. All right. <laughs> Yeah, so as always, we're going to cover some basic historical background first, and this time we're going to talk about fantasy comics. So fantasy comics, they're basically as old as the medium itself. Like even before comic books debuted in the format, we know fantasy was a really popular genre within pulp magazines. Like, you know, these were the magazines that gave us characters like Conan the Barbarian or John Carter of Mars and Call of Atlantis. And I should note that most of the big name characters of that era that have continued to last until today were created by two guys, Robert E. Howard and Edgar Rice Burroughs. But as soon as comics started to get popular, fantasy characters and stories really started showing up. Like everyone knows Action Comics number one as being Superman's first appearance, but it was also the debut of Zatara, who was this kind of stage magician who also had actual magic powers, and his daughter Zatanna wound up becoming a huge part of DC Comics lore later on. From then on, fantasy settings and characters were a definite part of comics. Like A lot of these were very traditionally medieval, pulling a lot from Arthurian legends. You had Prince Valiant, who debuted as a comic strip in the 1930s, and then reprints started getting collected and published later on. 
DC Comics had Shining Knight appearing shortly after all of this in Adventure Comics 66. And then he routinely appeared in the book for about 100 issues. And he's continued to go on. Like there's an entire episode of Justice League Unlimited where he's a main character. Alan Scott, who was the original Green Lantern, debuted in 1940. And his ring is canonically a magical item. Like he's considered one of the sentinels of magic in the DC Comics universe. And like, I have to note that pure fantasy books didn't exactly command a major market share during this time but horror fantasy definitely did like there were books like tales from the crypt and the vault of horror and the haunt of fear they were all insanely popular and they often featured tales about things like witches and curses and magic gone wrong and all of that was really very widely consumed and very popular until dr frederick wortham published this book called seduction on the innocent and we've talked about this in the past but Jessica, you want to give our listeners a quick recap of what the fallout of that was? Uh, Ah, yes. Fun times. This would be the start of the Comics Code Authority and the age of puckered puritanic buttholes, (laughs) more specifically, making things appropriate for the Utes. By heavily censoring comic content that was being published, as well as other media meant for children, this Moral panic, a veritable moral panic, headed by the belief that young and impressionable minds will explode, become evil with a capital E, become liberals. (laughs) Regardless, it was seen as morally imperative to shield these adolescent minds from these influencing forces. And thus was born the Comics Code Authority. Did I get that about right? Yeah, no. It, <laughs> yeah, he basically he was linking juvenile delinquency to comic books, and he didn't actually provide any actual evidence. But we've talked about this a lot. If you go back to our Halloween episode with DG Chichester, we talk about it a bit more. And it's very frustrating because the Comics Code Authority really stimmied storytelling in the medium for a long time. And that's why we didn't get representation in a lot of ways. Like queer people weren't allowed to actually show up until the 90s in comic books. They weren't allowed to even oh, be yeah. like acknowledged. Nope. Had to be incredibly heavily coded. Yeah, it sucks. I hate it. Now, after all this, traditional fantasy elements, like we usually think about them, dropped off. And the primary appearance of magic in comics came in the form of characters who utilize magic. So we had people like Dr. Fate, Dr. Occult, Dr. Strange, Dr. Thirteen, Dr. Doom. There's a lot of doctors on this list. Seven out of ten doctors agree that magic is a tool to be used. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But yeah, comics didn't really move back towards pure fantasy stories until 1970. And that was when Marvel got the rights to Conan the Barbarian. And so the National Library of France has this actually really solid article by William Blanc called Fantasy Invades Comics, and we'll link to it in the show notes. But it summarizes things pretty succinctly. So Kelly, if you want to read the highlighted text... Fantasy's breakthrough came about in the early 1970s, thanks in particular to new editions of The Adventures of Conan the Barbarian, illustrated by Frank Frazetta from 1966. Interest in the genre began to grow on college campuses, can confirm. Having noticed that, comic book publishers rushed in to devote whole series to Robert E. Howard's hero. Marvel published the first issue of Conan the Barbarian in October 1970. Uh, It was followed in short order by the series based on other characters drawn from the same oeuvre, e.g. Cole the Conqueror in 1971. Versions of Conan's adventures intended for older readers, Savage Sword of Conan, 1974, 
and imitations based on competing publishing houses. Sword of Sorcery in 1973 turned into Fawford and the Grey Mouser, created by Fritz Lieber in 1939, and Claw the Unconquered in 1975 into comic. Yeah. So fantasy books obviously started gaining popularity during this period, and they didn't really slow down. This was also the decade that we got ElfQuest, Marvel's Weird World, DC's long-lived Warlord series, to name just a few. And so fantasy comics were already experiencing a surge in popularity, and then we got the 1980s and the decade's indie comics boom. Dungeons & Dragons had already been published by the mid-1970s and were starting to gain popularity. Kelly, would you mind giving us a brief summary of what the public perception of the game was like by the time the 80s came around? Sure. I should preface by saying that the origin of Dungeons and Dragons was roughly 20 years before I was born, but I do love researching history. So I definitely did my homework. According to several sources, including the Nerdist, Gary Gygax started his company, Tactile Studies Rules, and it was successful enough to make him into kind of a rags to riches story throughout the early 60s and 70s. He went from essentially like a Steve Jobs story in his garage, just writing stuff down, playing games, going to different conventions and figuring out what other people were doing. And creating along with his business partner this incredible game that we still have today in its very infantile form and you know it really skyrocketed his career and his personal life and it was extremely successful given that a lot of people really gravitated towards a game that they could play both as themselves and as something completely different from themselves but public perception was certainly very mixed while the fans were very devoted the particular brand of people who think that anything magical is evil were not so for it and by the early 80s there was a lot of public sentiment that Dungeons and Dragons was in some way true witchcraft it was absolutely twisting the minds of young people in the way that metal music was also satanic mm-hmm. twisting their minds making them more susceptible to drug sex and alcohol which is so Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> oh yeah um, it, the satanic yeah. panic baby definitely so worried about those people chugging Mountain Dew in their basement Oh, yeah. And by the time the satanic panic rolled around, Dungeons and Dragons had been afflicted with a rather famous story of a young man who disappeared for several days after playing a Dungeons and Dragons game with his friends. And they recovered him. He was in the tunnels underneath his university because, sure. And the young man in question was unquestionably having a severe mental health issue. And I have no idea whether he received treatment for it because I mean, it was in the 80s. There's a good chance he didn't. He did it. And I would guess that because his parents and the investigator that they hired to find him both blamed Dungeons and Dragons for his break from his godly ways and had essentially decided that the whole thing was down to this game. It was a huge news story. It really fueled the more religious and more conservative hate against the game and became a definite downturn for a moment (laughs) in Dungeons and Dragons history. Yeah. And it also, if I remember right, that was the inspiration for the Tom Hanks classic, Mazes and Monsters. It was because I believe there was a book written about it called Mazes and Monsters or perhaps a TV special. I'm not sure. (laughs) I think (laughs) think it was an actual movie that they made and I watched it a while ago and it is bad. Zane, I was writing it down. Should I not watch it? I feel like you should hate watch it. (laughs) Oh, okay, cool. I'll just get really drunk. Perfect. No. 
like anything from that time, like the the episodes of the talk TV shows where they would have the Satanists on just to rile up conversation, where they'd have them face off against like priests or bishops or yeah. whoever. And it was damaging to both sides, genuinely, but mostly to the people who were underrepresented and didn't have the strong backing that the catholic church but i i do know that the fan base that began with gary gygax and the first iteration of dungeons and dragons really was loyal to the game and really did try their best to make it something positive and certainly people are seeing that kind of loyalty with stranger things now taking a look back at yeah. the 80s and seeing that because nobody really like loves a good nobody remembers the 80s as much as they do in nostalgia. <laughs> yeah. So like, I feel like Stranger Things as a much of a cultural moment as it is really targeting people who want to remember the 80s and that culture around fantasy and the dangers of as something that wasn't maybe so bad. And it's a little misleading, but also very cool. I love Stranger Things. Yeah. And on the other end of the spectrum, there was also r- right before... The period that we're going to talk about, there was also the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon, which was pretty successful from what I understand. But yeah, so now we're at the point where we can actually talk about Arrow Comics. Arrow Comics was an imprint that was started by two high school friends, Ralph Griffith and Stuart Kerr, in late 1985. Arrow's official website is still up and features a historical retrospective written by Kerr that talks about the company's origins. And basically, Griffith and Kerr decided they wanted to put out a local comics fanzine and then they were inspired by the first issue of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which was super successful and had very low production values. And they started publishing their own comics. And in that official history, Kerr claims that they actually went to the neighborhood Loan Shark to get the startup funds. I'm not sure how serious he is with that claim, but <laughs> they were able to drum up some serious talent who were just starting out on their careers. And they started publishing books. And the first comic that they put out was called Tales of the Anniverse. Most online sources say it was published in 85. Kerr's official retelling claims it was actually December of 84. I think that may have been a typo, but it's something that I just wanted to note. And then in March of 86, we got the first issue of The Realm, which was a bi-monthly fantasy series scripted by both Griffith and Kerr. And pencils were done by Guy Davis. Layouts were done by Jim Miller. Letters by Lex Morris and inks by Tim Zahn. So The creative roster would rotate later on, but these were the OGs. And I noticed a couple of issues later that Vince Locke joins in, originally doing lettering. Locke is an artist that we've talked about because he inked a number of issues for The Sandman, and he also contributed a ton to the White Wolf RPG books that I was consuming when I was starting to get into RPGs. He did both covers and interior artwork before he went on to illustrate A History of Violence, which was then adapted into a movie in 2005. Now, this book is obviously inspired by Dungeons and Dragons, and it's just something I noticed. So I figured we'd talk about it. Okay, so Kelly, what version of D&D was being played in the mid-80s when this book launched, and what was notable about it compared to previous versions? Okay, like I said, my research is all research and uh, no personal experience, but I do see that people who want to study Dungeons and Dragons history might be a little confused because there is a first edition of Dungeons and Dragons that is split into like four different iterations. 
And it's really like I found confusion because there's the basic Dungeons and Dragons and then there's advanced Dungeons and Dragons, which somewhat turned into just Dungeons and Dragons because it was what TSR wanted to focus on. And they were essentially split up into levels Mm -hmm. of characters. I believe this is the version that was current when the realm was being released for the first time. And Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, essentially, Basic and Advanced were two iterations of the same game. What we would consider now to be the beginning levels of the game would be the Basic version. And what we would consider now to be like the middle fifth (laughs) of the levels would be the Advanced D&D. And they ended up encompassing like Basic Rules, which is colloquially known as the Red One because it was a Red Book. And then the Immortal Rules, which we would consider more like past levels. So originally you could go up to 36 levels in Dungeons and Dragons. These were for characters who had transcended levels, according to the BBC. It's such a BBC thing to write about a game. (laughs) And (laughs) essentially like the immortal rules were for characters who had become so powerful within the confines of the game that the dungeon masters essentially were just there for show. characters had become god but these early versions of Dungeons and dragons were much more broken down by like simplicity of the game versus how far along you necessarily want to take the game and where you could go with it. it it was less as it is now which is very this campaign is going from level one to level 15 and where you're going to progress every single level through there and every single level feels like work <laughs> mm. you're always looking for that next level up which makes it sound like a video game but i think it might reflect a changing in the fan base a little bit just from my own experience with the modern D. this original iteration in the mid 80s would have been something i very much would have liked to start out with the basic rules of it was much simpler and for people who were reading the realm and who were reading similar publications it was very reflective of the more simplistic we are just going to give you a framework And we are going to leave a lot to your imagination. And we are going to give you the confines of the game that you are playing. And then you create the rest. And Dungeons & Dragons has largely stayed that. But for people who were already into a comic like The Realm that is not necessarily like specifically Dungeons & Dragons, but just overarching fantasy, it was... I would have felt very at home making that jump into doing something adventurous myself. Yeah, it's like you read the realm and it's very undeniably a D&D comic just without the official yeah. license. Like, yes, exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But the series wound up running for a total of 21 issues. And we'll talk about how it bounced between publishers in a few. But Jessica, can you give us a brief summary of the overall storyline of those core issues that we're going to talk about? Most certainly. So we are following the story of four normal teenagers, Dom, Sandy, Alex, and Marge, who go up to a cabin that was left to Alex by his uncle. Alex is already hiding something about his uncle or the cabin itself from his friends. That's never resolved. Just know that. It's never resolved. And they very quickly come across a legit treasure chest that they trip over, quite literally. And upon breaking it open, which if you find a treasure chest, please just leave it alone. Like if you find something weird in a bog, leave it alone. Yeah, it really is. It's like under a swamp tree. Like don't touch that. They they find it fishing. Like they basically, they (laughs) catch it. Like, okay, whatever. Why not? Okay. 
Also, I'm sorry, but if you inherit a cabin from your like weird long lost uncle and he's like, part of my will is that you have to drive up there and spend a weekend there. I don't know. Mm, like, have you never seen a horror movie, dude? Like this never I ends I was well. literally thinking that just like chainsaws. And also like not to stereotype horror movies. All four of these teenagers are white. There is the stereotypical mm-hmm. rich girl that 100% will die first. Like, I, yep. <laughs> like you are like, this is not lizard brain is directing where they're going. Like this is not. Happening. Oh yeah. They all yeah. start out as tropes and they all progress in fairly oh, interesting yeah. ways. Like I was actually pleasantly surprised by how, well, how three out of the four developed. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. So this treasure chest upon breaking it open, transports them to a very unfamiliar place. And they land directly in the middle of a conflict, which is essentially between two evil forces trying to take over the world that they have just entered. Sandra ends up getting sold to the Dark Lord of the land, Darkoth, who bought her because she was hot. Oh, but also there's a power that resides within her that the Dark Lord wants to tap, so to speak. And (laughs) Marge ends up being a priestess and connects with one of the gods. Dom grows about three times his previous muscle size and is obviously the jock barbarian. And Alex is a whiny bitch the whole time about the choices he has made, his own choices. But he ends up being like super powerful or whatever after the death of his girlfriend was the breaking point he needed to find that power. So we'll talk about that. And they gain allies and enemies as they fight to bring down evil save the land of Azroth, and hopefully find their way home. Oh, yeah, spoiler alert, it ends on a motherfucking cliffhanger where Sandy opens the bad box of badness, but that's it. Bad box of badness and nothing. Starts with a box opening, it ends with a box (laughs) opening. That's how this is rolled out. Yeah, and like that's something that I actually really liked about Sandy is that she has a very, it's a slow burn heel turn, and I liked it a lot because it's her getting tempted with power where Darkoth mm-hmm. is sitting there and he's like, I'm going to convert her to my cause and all that. And by the end of it, she's a really powerful kind of sorceress. It's not exactly explained, but she's super magically charged and she knows what he is doing and she has no illusions about it. And she basically talks to his right-hand man and she's like, yeah, so when I make my move, you going to be on the winning side? Like, cause here's the thing. He keeps on using me to do all this stuff because he doesn't have the power. And I thought that was really rad. And then she opens the box that contains the demon storm or the daemon storm. And that's where the series ends. And meanwhile, Alex, who was hinted as being a wizard in the first issue, he doesn't really do that. He's just useless for most of the comic. And then he and Marge are originally painted as like the lovers who are going to get together. And then he fucks that up real hard very early on. By So bad. Yeah, he sleeps with, with Letha, who is like a barbarian knight. And she's great, like no fault of her own. She didn't know that this dude was pining for someone else and there was that unresolved oh, conflict. Yeah, I know. And then he spends the entire rest of the series trying to get March back. And she very rightfully is like, eh, go fuck yourself. I got other stuff to do. <laughs> and- yeah. And she's becoming a badass and like developing herself. She's like, oh, yeah, you're holding yeah. me back anyway. Yeah. Like, I loved that. I did too. And Dom, who was originally Sandy's boyfriend, he winds up at the very end getting together with Silverfond, the elf who joined their party very early on. And it's also done in a nice kind of like drawn out kind of way where there's that tension, will they, won't they moments. And I liked that. And then, you know, and the other thing is that I was actually really surprised at how the women all had like believable outfits. It wasn't a bunch of TNA, which I expected from the 80s. 
No. Yeah, I agree with that. Yes, absolutely. No. Yeah. I haven't read a lot of comics from the 80s, but mm-hmm. I did really appreciate that it wasn't, unless it was obviously supposed to be, it wasn't fan servicey. Like they knew their audience. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Obviously we've started down this path, but what were your overall thoughts for the comic? Well, as I just said, I I don't have a lot of reference for other comics in the eighties. It's not an era that I've read a ton in, but I liked it as a person just reading it fresh. I struggled a little bit with the art style. I tend to rely a lot on expression, facial expression, Mm -hmm. and the facial expressions, at least in the first couple issues, were very, either very vague or not there at all. Like other than Dom, weirdly, no one's facial expression change especially the women it was very like the same face and like that changes obviously as the creators get more comfortable with their baby and with their product and their own styles and everything but it was very strange to me that like only dom (laughs) his face would change like he had a varied range of emotion even in the first issue alex was obviously supposed to be like the party leader they set him up to be that yeah I-, I liked him better. <laughs> he wasn't whiny. He was a nice guy, but he wasn't a nice guy TM. Like Alex just yes. gives me weird coffee shop hipster vibes. Like don't talk to him, honey. Like stay away. He wears too much plaid and too many beanies. He was just insipid. He almost struck me as how Sandy was supposed to be. Like if I had a preconception of how Sandy was supposed to be, which she was a little bit, she was a bit spoiled and a bit rich girly. But like, I didn't really get that a lot. I got that from Alex. (laughs) Like, I I don't know if maybe I just got my wires crossed while I was reading it, but I just really found that to be off-putting. Like, their expressions were very hard to read and the characters stereotyped to the point where they actually weren't stereotyped anymore. (laughs) And then, but as it progressed, it really formed itself. Like, the shift, especially in the female characters, realizing their own worth and their own power. I imagine, especially for women at the time, who are already in a space that was pretty male dominated would have been incredibly encouraging. This is a space you belong in and you can find your power here. You can find that guy that you've been seeing because everybody thinks it would be cute. You actually don't have to if he's holding you back and you don't have to be beholden to anybody else. You have your own power. And that was really cool to see just right off the bat. Like Marge just straight up saying, I know what I'm doing. Don't tell me what to do. It was insane. It was super cool. And I really love Silver Fawn. I think she's incredible. I loved that the female warriors immediately were not overly feminine. Like you were saying, their outfits Mm -hmm. are just traveler's clothes. Like, I I genuinely didn't know that Silver Fawn was supposed to be one gender or the other when I first saw her. It didn't really cross my mind to look. Yeah, she comes off a little androgynous. She does. And a lot of the female characters that I saw weren't designed to be fan servicey, were not designed to be ultra femme or to be saved in any way, to be presented as strong and then suddenly turn on a dime and have to be saved by the male characters. They were not there just to support Alex and Dom. They were their own arc, their own story. And I, I found that really encouraging. And after a while, I, when I got used to it, I really liked the art style. I really liked the art style. I thought it was it's, great by the end. The last volume, the art, it's a different creative team. Yeah. And it's, the art style feels messier. It's its own thing. It's not bad, but it's just, it was a, a jarring shift because up until that point, it had been penciled by Guy Davis. Yeah. Jessica, yeah. what did you think? Well, as far as stories go, it was fine. It was fun for the most part. It was a pretty quick read and held my attention. I, I do like those stories where they accumulate kind of party members or characters and it was really funny to see 
some of the similarities between like you had the the one character that was obviously supposed to be like a hobbit you know and like yeah. you had they kept calling him like fuzzy feet and like hairy yeah. feet and i was like okay you're obviously a hobbit yeah. you know so those types of things were really fun but i had some issues with the comic like their approach starting out with some of the female characters like they did have to be rescued at first they were they very did. damsley yeah. i mean they literally like got captured by slavers yes. yep. in the great. first five seconds of the fr- I oh. was like ah we're going there huh oh and you're just gonna like market her as the hottest one there we're yeah. we're going there okay yeah. and like Sandy at one like she has some comment about how she broke her nail and in the foreword that Stuart Kerr wrote he acknowledges he's like I almost immediately that was- knew that was the wrong thing to write like he's <laughs> he's just like he's like and it, and it really I don't like it now like 30 years later he says something like he wrote it and it's the most regretted line in his career that he's ever written or something. He said something yeah. like that in the foreword. And I was like, oh, <laughs> which I mean, like I thought was cool for him to acknowledge. But yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, certainly. Absolutely. Yeah. And on the point of the art that you had mentioned, Kelly, for me, it was hard because in the first few issues, a lot of the characters were drawn with really f- similar facial structures. Yeah. And so I had a hard time with like, okay, everybody has like an elongated nose that's shaped the exact same way and either dark or light hair. Oh, and sometimes it's dark in the back, but like a light up front. So you just, if it's a close up, like, who am I really looking at here? Yes. So that was a point of confusion for me. And I felt like I had to suss that out a little bit more in the first few issues. And arguably, it got better. Like you said, it felt like they got a little bit more comfortable and the characters started being a little bit more played up a little bit further through the drawing than they were at first. Yeah. Yeah. Like Guy Davis clearly got much more confident with it as it went on. And then the other thing is like, this was obviously like a very early comic by people who weren't entirely familiar with how to make them at that point and so you could see the shading was a little weird and they weren't quite sure how to do stuff like that and then by the time that you're about four or five issues in it starts to really gel together but yeah yeah there was a panel in the very first issue of the first volume and i believe it's just after the girls have been taken by the slavers and they do i think what's supposed to be happening is night is falling but mm-hmm. the shading over the entire panel of just like it's rough diagonal black lines i was like is it raining what's happening yeah. but then it was still light outside i don't understand i i was so thrown i was like i don't know what's happening here <laughs> are we drawing a veil like what is <laughs> i was so confused yeah the shading really threw me for a loop the first couple issues yeah, and then it gets really off again in the later issues too when you're reading yeah. through it. You're just like, I don't know yeah. what's going on. Okay. But yeah, like the the core story that's told over like the first 15 or so issues or 16, it, it gels pretty well together, I felt. There's some dangling plot threads and all that, but for the most part, I feel like they wrapped it up pretty well. And then they were clearly setting Sandra up to be the big bad, and then we never got that resolution, and we'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. But yeah, so I'm curious if we were going to rate this comic series with a d20 what number would come up on the roll for each one of you fortunately i actually have all my dice from last night still out on my desk i would say somewhere in the realm of like the realm Uh i would i'm so funny i would say somewhere within a 10 or 11 it was Mm. fine i liked it as a person reading a book pretty 
okay, didn't love that it ended with absolutely no warning. But you know what? Sometimes that happens and you just move on. But I really struggle with the facial expressions. And that could be that I just haven't read a lot in that style. It could be a thousand different things. But I really struggled to connect with the characters right off the bat. And that made it hard later. But it definitely gets props for the female character's story progression. It gets cons for Alex. Uh (laughs) (laughs) A lot of cons for Alex. It just evens out to half and half. It was... Fine. It was a 10 or an 11. Yeah, that's fair. All right, Jessica, how about you? I have a list. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like aggressively pointing at you, Kelly, when you said 10 or 11. (laughs) That was because I have 10 written on my page right here. It's just a 10. Like you didn't hit anything. Like it. Fine, you know. You made but, a comic and that gets you the 10 points, and it was like published, and you did a good enough job to get published. Everything exactly. past that is gravy. <laughs> I had some enjoyment from it. Yes. But, however, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the fact that they did not treat women very nice all the time in this comic. And let's talk about how. I know Mike noticed this because I got very mouthy about this uh, a little bit earlier today. They changed how Sandy and Marge were spelled after like the second, first or second issue. Yep. Yes. Who gives a fuck about how to spell women's names? Who gives a fuck if it's Sandy with an I or a Y? Who gives a fuck if it's Marge with a G or a J? I was pissed. I was so confused. I was like, is this a different character? Like what? I know. I know. No, they were just being inconsiderate. They just could not remember what they named their female characters. That's all. Because that's how inconsequential. Yeah. Yeah. Really tells you something. Really tells you something. It's almost like it was written by a bunch of cis white straight guys in their early 20s in the 80s. Yeah. In 1984. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody in this comic was white. Yep. That's something that I'm going to talk about later. They fridged the fuck out of Marge. So the only reason that Alex had any interesting plot points at all were because he fucked up and Marge broke up with him. He fucked up and Marge died. And then like her death was like the conduit for him doing anything interesting. It's like, wow, that's rough. Go ahead and put her back in the refrigerator. Why don't you? Because why is she there other than to progress his storyline? Yes. Cool. Yeah. Did not like that. Of course, the elf and the other female character that show up, of course they just gravitate to these two fucking dopey humans. I'm so fucking (laughs) sure. Yeah, I'm so sure they did. Yeah, okay. Then we have the use of the F word, and I'm not talking fuck, because I will say fuck (laughs) all day, but the 80s version of the F word, which is three letters, and I refuse to say it is a derogatory term for homosexual people. I don't like it. And then there was the comment from, I believe, the dwarf about, oh, oh, a woman is leading something, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I'm going to punch you in your little dwarf face. That's what I'm going to oh, do. Yeah, I screenshotted that. I was giving the order and, sh- and he says, I, who put a woman in charge or something like that? Yeah. I, I screenshotted that because I was wondering if you were going to notice that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I bristled immediately. I was a porcupine. Yep. <laughs> and finally. But not least, fucking cliffhanger? You told us. You gave us a comic that said it was two of four. Yep. You never produced three or four, motherfuckers. 
Where are my yeah. three and four? I got mad today when I was finishing up the comic. We Ooh. might have a resolution to the cliffhanger. I don't know. We'll talk about it in a minute. Oh, oh, oh. oh. We oh, might. Mike, Ooh, I don't know. With hot news. So that's my 10 score, my feelings. Yeah. They're they valid. Are. I love I think them. Thank you. I, I, yeah. like, I'm right in the same alignment as you two. I'm thinking like 11 to 12 because it's like... <sighs> It's not great, but it's good enough to survive most checks because it's better than a lot of the indie <laughs> comics that were coming out back then. Like, definitely not a critical success. Like, that is not a 20, but I didn't hate it. I enjoyed it for the most part. Honestly, if they had ended it when Marge died, I actually, I think, would have given it a higher score. I would have been thrilled with the fact that, like, one of the better characters got killed off just to develop Alex. It's solid. And the thing is, I think the pros outweigh the cons. So it's okay. It's not great. But... It's still interesting. If we had Marge die and then the series ended, we would have never had to deal with the bullshit from Alex. Yeah. It's true. It's true. I mean, honestly, I would have much rather had Alex sacrifice himself for Marge. Yes. And then that yes. winds up like letting her tap into the deep power that she contains. Like that would have been yeah. weird. But whatever. The other one that I really had a problem with was there were a couple issues that were very much exposition about the history of the world. There's like two issues where they're talking about this war between nations and stuff. And I'm like, I don't care. I just want to get back to the party that we're supposed to be following. And instead it's all this like very formal strategy. Yeah, it's not good. It's fine. I skipped it. I'm not going to lie. It literally, you're not missing anything. Like the fact that you skipped it and you didn't miss anything, you're fine. But yeah, it's okay. It's not great, but it's not something that I regret reading. It's not like those Illuminator comics from Marvel's Christian comics that they did oh. back in the 90s. So... <laughs> I'm not mad about it. About those for a second. So, you know, as is the case with all good things, Arrow Comics came to an end. Unfortunately, it was a little bit sooner than they expected because of the implosion of the black and white comics market at the end of the 80s. This was basically a precursor to the speculation bubble and subsequent burst that we saw in the 90s. And Mark Thompson, who ran this indie distributor called Cold Cut Comics until 2007 or so, wrote up a great summary about that whole situation, and I'll include it in the show notes if you want to learn more about it. But basically, it was just an instance where there was this glut of indie black and white comics that everyone was speculating on, and then they realized that a lot of the comics they were buying were garbage, so they stopped buying them. And because of how distribution and orders worked, it wound up just obliterating a ton of indie comic studios. Arrow ended up agreeing to bring their two most popular series, The Realm, and Dead World actually premiered in the back of one of the realm's issues over to writer Gary Reed's newly newly launched publishing group Caliber Comics which continued publishing the books i think these were the first two books to run under caliber's banner i'm not certain but this is why we were actually able to easily read the realm on hoopla collected as a bunch of graphic novels called legend lore by the way don't look up the individual issues because you'll max out your borrow limit Look up the trades for Legend Lore Tales of the Realm if you want to read this. I learned that the hard way. <laughs> and Hoopla's super cool because they support public libraries. So you should oh, yeah. absolutely go and get a library card and use Hoopla and mm-hmm. use your library sources. Yeah, but we yeah. sing Hoopla's praise all the time. We love them. But yeah, so like I was saying, this is why we're able to still easily read this book is because Caliber is still around and still publishing books. The first volume lasts until issue 21. As we noted, it ends on a pretty big cliffhanger, and the story may have been resolved. They have subsequently published a crossover series between Dead World and The Realm and a couple of the other 
Arrow slash Caliber Comics series that was called Damon Storm. I don't know how it wound up because I haven't been able to find copies of it online. The Realm itself got another series under Caliber, like a volume two, but I still, again, can't track down issues digitally by the time of recording. And as far as I can tell, it's not available online at all. There are issues for sale on eBay. They're pretty cheap, but I don't have them. I will say the covers all look pretty grim and gritty compared to the first series. And then it also looks like the series came back again under a different name called Legend Lore in the late 90s. It was a totally different creative team, and it actually focuses on Silver Fawn, the elf who was going around with the original group. I haven't really read it all, so I don't know if they appear later on, but the first couple of issues, it's just her and the politics that she's involved with. It's funny because in total, there are almost 50 individual comics under the realm's narrative umbrella, even if it's not always focused on telling the same story with the same characters. And then... Arrow itself had a couple of short-lived resurrections in the 90s where they pumped out some content and then would fold again. And there have been a couple of other restarts since then, but without Griffith or Kerr involved, so I don't really feel like it's the same company at that point. And then it doesn't really look like Kerr or Griffith actually returned to comics after the 90s. Griffith actually passed away in late 2020. It sounds like he had some pretty serious mm-hmm. health issues by then. And... Kerr's entry on Arrow's history notes that he wound up managing a grocery store after the company folded for the first time. I'm not sure what he and Griffith went on to after that point, but they're not credited with any comics past the late 90s, aside from some reprints that have come out since then. But that doesn't mean they weren't. A lot of the comics tracking sites that I was researching this on don't have complete information on a lot of Arrow's books. In fact, a lot of them only have like partial listings for the realm in terms of issues. They don't even have like the full series documented. So I could be totally wrong. I couldn't find many credits for Jim Miller or Lex Morris, and neither of them really seem to have credits after the 80s. So I'm not sure what happened them. And then Inker Tim Zahn wound up doing regular inking and cover art for Marvel titles through the 90s. But when the industry shakeups affected him around this time, he had to do whatever he could to make ends meet, including working retail. And he fell on some pretty hard times in the last couple of years. But the Hero Initiative was able to actually step in and help him out. He's credited the group as saving him from homelessness and is starting to make his way back into the industry. So we'll include a link to his Hero Initiative profile in the show notes if you want to hire him or learn more about him. I talked about Vince Locke. He was originally lettering and becoming really successful in in his own right. Dead World debuted in the realm number four and then went on to become its own series and it's still being published and reprinted. And then aside from the history of violence getting adapted into a movie, He's basically like the cover artist for the death metal group Cannibal Corpse, which is great. Like, that's just what he does. He he does like every that's cover for Cannibal Corpse. Random and awesome. It's that's amazing. Cool. Yeah. And then the last one that I want to talk about is Guy Davis. Like, so Guy Davis was the penciler through the main core of the series. He wound up being the most successful, arguably, of the realm's creators. He continued to work in comics on cool projects. Like, I really want to cover his caliber series baker street at some point like i'm just letting you know jessica like we're gonna talk about that because it's like an 80s imagine an 80s punk version of sherlock holmes that's what i thought it was when i saw the advert for it i was wondering i have got to find that somewhere and then on top of that he's actually had a really successful career doing concept art storyboards and creature design he's got like a lot of really impressive credits but it looks like he and guillermo del toro are buds because his imdb page shows that he's been a concept artist on i think every one of del toro's films since crimson peak onwards 
And wow. interestingly, he and I actually show up in the credits for the same video game. We didn't overlap. We never dealt with each other, but we're both credited in the game Evolve. It counts. Proximity counts. Oh I know. Oh my goodness. So, you know, Networking. six degrees of separation. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so that's the realm. And we're going to leave things at that. We're going to come back in two weeks to discuss Dungeons and Dragons' first official foray into comics, which began right in the middle of the realm's run. But before we move on to brain wrinkles, does anyone have any final thoughts? Be nice to women. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I really thought that it was very interesting for someone who hasn't had a lot of exposure to comics in general for myself to see something that was formative for something that I am so interested in Dungeons and Dragons and that was something that came out of the origins of that and it was a really interesting view because I only hear things about the 80s I never got to experience them or had to experience them depending on your view but (laughs) I But it's an interesting perspective for me because I don't have that experience. And to only hear about something that I'm so passionate about in its history is sad. I'll never get to know what it was like to be on the forefront of this. And every time I say that I'm only 25, my boss is like, stop. (laughs) Like I was playing D. But his reference for how much older he is than me is he was playing D&D in the 80s. And like, it's such a cornerstone for his life. And I really wish I could experience it. I don't want to live in the 80s. I I feel like that'd be a bad time for me. But I do think that it was a really fun experiment for me to read the realm and to see what the art style was like and to see how other parts of nerd industries were connecting with Dungeons and Dragons. And it, it was a very interesting intellectual experiment for me. You arguably got something better. See, you got to spend part of your 20s in a pandemic. That's I'm being completely facetious. That's no, not better. That's true. However, I didn't have to deal with Reagan. My final thought is I really liked how 10 issues in, Dom was still sleeping in his Nike running shorts and he had on his knee high socks. <laughs> I thought that was great. I thought it was Jumped very wholesome. To the end. Yeah. He's got a good thing going. Hey, man. Yeah, I liked him. He was good. Okay, so what do you say we sojourn over to Brain Wrinkles? So we are now at the point of the show where we are discussing our Brain Wrinkles, which is the one thing that is comics or comics adjacent, or in this case, D&D adjacent, doesn't have to be exclusive, that is just kicking around our brain and won't go away. So Jessica, you want to start things off? Absolutely. I'll kick us off on this one. I just wanted to give a shout out to my D&D crew and just tell them how amazing they are. And I know a lot of them listen to the podcast. So Christopher is our DM. Thank you, Christopher. We have Russ, who is our cleric. We have Christina, who's our druid. And then we have Noelle, who's our ranger. So it's a good time. And I'm the bard. I'm always the bard. Of course, I am (laughs) singing some songs, getting the attention with the charisma. Here I am. Clouding someone with daggers. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that's my shout out. I just wanted to to give some love to my D&D crew. And I love them and they're great. And I love spending Sunday nights with them. So love you guys. Oh, that's awesome. That's so sweet. Kelly, 
So one thing that's been in the back of my mind, and I made a joke about it earlier, but it is something that I've been working towards for a while. When I first came to work at Goblin Brothers, I didn't know anything about board games, (laughs) which is really bad in a board game store. My one thing going for me was that I knew social media and I was so pushy about Dungeons and Dragons and pushy in general, but I really wanted to make Dungeons and Dragons as accessible to everyone as possible. The way that I got into it was just jumping in. I just threw myself into it and it was really hard, especially with a full caster like a druid. It was incredibly hard, but I want to give other people that opportunity. And so one thing that I have been planning and just like throwing my whole consciousness and subconsciousness into is planning D&D workshops at Goblin Brothers. We finally set a date for them in May. And so it's just going to take people who have always wanted to try Dungeons and Dragons and say, here is a three hour session where we teach you the very bare bones basics of how to do this incredible game that you will love. And like not you will love in an aggressive way. I'm not like forcing anybody to. You're not Alex. <laughs> these are these are volunteers, but I We're going to trap you in a room and we will teach you about Dungeons and Dragons, damn it. <laughs> you will dungeon and you will dragons. No, it's very like I'm not forcing customers into the back garden, I promise. But I love to teach people things. I love to talk about Dungeons and Dragons, and if I can combine those two into something that not only helps people in general, but especially kids. We're going to have one for kids and one for adults. I am really excited to see more kids just being able to be themselves in this incredible game. And we're also getting in a Kickstarter book called Limitless Heroics, which works in disabilities and neurodivergence and mental illness into our store. I think it will come out at the end of this year. And I really would like to do a workshop integrating that because so many kids now are getting into Dungeons and Dragons because it's the only thing where they feel like they don't have to be the gifted kid and they don't Mm -hmm. have to be that kid that works so, so hard all the time. I just got chills. (laughs) It's just such a great escape. It's been such a wonderful thing for me. such a wonderful thing for my boyfriend and our best friend and just everybody around us is willing or not hearing everything about Dungeons and Dragons from me. And I'm so excited for these workshops. So that was very verbose, but I'm just very passionate about it. (laughs) Oh, I'm so excited about this. This is great. Yeah. And I do hope to be able to open them up at some point to like a Facebook live or a recording, a YouTube video, something like that, where you send us a receipt for donating $5 to a charity or you pay $5 for a ticket or something like that. We can send you the event recording and you can get your own Dungeons and Dragons workshop from the comfort of your home. But yeah, I would very much like to develop them into something more. That's awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But everybody should check out that Kickstarter, Limitless Heroics. It's incredible. Well, on the same wavelengths, I have been thinking about representation in fantasy in general and in D&D and in the realm. Like, as you noted earlier in the episode that, like, all the characters are very white. And in the past couple of weeks, there, like, actually, it was about the time that we were recording our Aquaman episode, Jessica. An issue of King Conan came out with a character named Princess Matoka. And Matoka is the actual name of Pocahontas. And I have included the artwork in the show notes if you would both like to take a look. Yeah, I was wondering about that, Mike. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was... yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's not great. And it's funny because I didn't know at the time that was Pocahontas. I only discovered that actually the other day when a YouTube video came on and talked about it a bit. And yeah, I remember reading that issue and being like, 
it's very weird because they present her as a blend of Native and Mesoamerican cultures. And the narrative itself and the imagery they provide is not great. And Jason Aaron, the writer, has actually gone on record to apologize and talk about how he shouldn't have done that. But at the same time, it's interesting to think about where we are now, where we are seeing more representation with characters. Like in the cartoon Vox Machina, there's a mix of races. In Critical Role, their current campaign, it's not Mesoamerican, right? The setting? Yeah, I'm trying to remember. We don't so watch the, it. Yeah, so. so the setting is very... It reminds me a lot of those lost, the quote unquote lost cities that they found yeah. in South America that are carved out of the mountains and carved out of those divots in the hills and things. Dressar is built on floating columns of mountain, essentially. They're called the spires. Right. And then I know that they've actually hired consultants to like help them yes. tell a story that is inclusive. Yeah. And so, yeah, things are a lot better now compared to where they were in the 80s when all this stuff was really kicking off. But at the same time, it's a reminder that we still have a ways to go. And I'm really glad to see stores like Goblin Bros popping up where one of their core tenants is accessibility and diversity and inclusion. And I think that's great. Yeah, our focus is community. We would not be here without our community. We would have been able to succeed as we have and be an award-winning store without our community and I would not be here without my community. And we all are extremely cognizant of that at Goblin Brothers. All of us have some sort of facet of our lives that would have ostracized us in the 80s. Oh yeah, 100%. 100%. We are so fortunate that we live in a time now where we might not be ostracized, but it's expected that we have something like that. <laughs> but also, <laughs> you have to wear it like your armor. And yeah. we want in Goblin Brothers, we want you to be able to lay down that armor and just be yourself. And what I love is I went into the store one day with Mike and we brought our dogs. I love that it's yeah. dog friendly. We have treats. We have word treats. Bring yes. your dogs in. <laughs> yeah. No, the dogs got treats. They were yeah. very happy. I'm sure. And I was over by the pins because there's a big old bin of like all these different pins. And I zeroed in right away because right there was like a pansexual pin. And I was like, y'all are already representing me. And I could like, I'm visible. I'm literally right there. And dug my little hand in there, <laughs> pulled that out, yeah. pulled out a Wonder Woman. I, there's a bunch of cool stuff in there. But it's an example of the representation that you do have in the store. It does feel very welcoming and it feels like anybody is able to come into the store and, and not only be welcome, but also be represented. Yeah. So I have had the experience as a obviously very female presenting person walking into other game stores that I won't name where I have felt like I had to justify my presence. And yeah. I have felt like I had to say, no, actually, I do know what I'm looking for. I'm good. Thank you. I don't need you to explain what Dungeons and Dragons is to me. I'm a DM. One of my biggest goals with Goblin Brothers. I wanted to make sure that no person ever felt like they had to walk in and be on their guard and justify to me why they should be in my place of work because that's just so disheartening and I have had several women come up to me and say I am so comfortable here and and that could be because just having another female presenting person as an employee in the store is always more comfortable but it also I can't ignore the fact that it might be more comfortable just because they don't feel like they're being judged just for walking in so yeah yeah. And I've had that experience before where I did feel like, like I'm a nerd. Yeah. I'm a hardcore nerd. Yeah. And I have absolutely had my nerd card called into question. I'm like, bro, I was a drum major in the band. Like, I don't. Yeah. Like, I already get like something for that. <laughs> 
on top of my other nerdiness. Like I have a Gandalf tattoo now just to prove it, I guess. Yeah. And also, how dare you assume that I don't have as much right to be in the same space as you without you having to give me that pass? Yeah. All right. Kelly, thank you so much for being here with us. We really appreciate you taking the time. And this was an absolute blast. Yeah, no, this has been an absolute complete honor to be here, you guys, genuinely. Yeah, we're glad to have you. So we will be back in two weeks where we will be continuing to talk about Dungeons & Dragons comics. And in the meantime, we will see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier, Mike Thompson, and Kelly Galton, written by Mike Thompson, and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald, and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who you can find at lookmomdraws.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to tencenttakes.com or shoot an email to tencenttakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. The official podcast account is tencenttakes. Jessica is Jessica Witha and Jessica spelled with a K. And Mike is Van Zell, V-A-N-S-A-U. If you'd like to follow myself or Goblin Brothers, you can find my writing at BadgerPride96 on Instagram. You can find my YouTube and Twitch at the same. And Goblin Brothers is on all our platforms, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Goblin Brothers. And we post every Tuesday with a new event, a new story, and you can find us in our stories throughout the week. If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop.